You're listening to the Morphology Podcast. Thanks for tuning into the Morphology Podcast, aka Murph here, to share interviews about biking experiences from cyclists who have pedaled to places all over. Each week, we'll get to know new people and explore new destinations to ride your bike. As you listen to these adventures, you may wonder, why haven't I done that yet? Well, today I'm on to catch up on some listener mail, so let's get right to it. Greg writes, I'm considering riding the Southern Tier next spring and have listened to all your episodes about your trip. What are a few things you would do differently? Okay, well, thank you, Greg, for writing in. And this is a great question. There are a lot of things I would not change about riding my bike across the United States on the Southern Tier. But since Greg specifically asked what I would change, here are a couple of things I would change. For sure, I would change how the support setup worked. We had a huge RV towing a Jeep, and we used these for midday support and, of course, as transportation to and from the location of our overnight stay. It was huge, so it wasn't the easiest to park, and the owner of the RV wanted to park in an actual RV park each night. So that added a pretty interesting planning element to our trip, and we couldn't plan too far ahead because we never know exactly how many miles we would complete each day based on the terrain, the weather, how we were feeling, all of that good stuff. Some days the RV would pick us up en route and we'd have to then drive an hour or so, sometimes longer, to an RV park. And sometimes it would be moving forward and sometimes it would be going backwards. Then the next morning we'd have to load up and go back to the spot on the route where we ended the day before. And RV parks, they're just not always conveniently located near the Southern Tier route. So it definitely added a lot of travel and expense that we had really not planned for. It was a luxury to have a shower each night, air-conditioned place to sleep, along with a fridge full of food, but I often wonder what the trip would have been like if we had either stealth camped right along the route, closer to the route, or even made the trip self-contained. Another thing I would change is how I documented the adventure. Of course, I took all kinds of photos every single day, but looking back, I wish I would have taken more photos of the day-to-day -day routine. For example, like maybe what my bike looked like as each day went by. Maybe more pictures of the meals we ate and the unique places that we ate at. And the people we met, there are so many people that we met along the way that I journaled about, but I didn't always get photos and names, so I wish I would have done more of that. And just in general, more of the unique things that we saw, you know, as you're riding your bike by at 10 to 15 miles an hour, you may be seeing structures, buildings, you know, just environment that you, you know, you might think about, but I didn't always document it with a photo. So I wish I could have changed that. In the moment, it's easy to think, wow, this is cool. But now six months later, it's hard to recall what I saw every single day. 
I also wish I would have been more diligent about journaling each day. I for sure made notes each day in my phone in the little notes app that included mileage, interesting things we saw, stuff that was funny at the time. But I wish I would have documented more about like how I felt and like I mentioned, the people that we met along the way. One thing I am very glad of is every single day I created a post for social media that included photos along with stats. And it's still fun to look back at all of those and realize I really did ride my bike across the entire United States. Okay, next up is Michael who asked, tubeless or tubes, which is better? Well, my experience points to tubeless, but to be honest, I have not had a lot of tire trouble in general. And I guess I should probably knock on wood right now after saying that out loud. But anyway, let me give you the high level scoop on what tubeless or tubes even means. In the past, most bikes came with a tire and an inner tube inside that tire. And when your bike has a flat tire, most of the time, it's the inner tube that fails and deflates. Maybe you rode over a nail or some glass. You pretty much have two choices when it comes to fixing this problem. You remove the wheel from your bike frame, then you remove the inner tube and either replace it with a new inner tube or find the hole and use your patch kit to seal the hole. And then cross your fingers the patch holds when you put it back on. Changing a tire is a skill anyone can learn, although most people it can be a little bit time consuming. If you happen to have internet on your phone when you get a flat, you can easily Google how to change an inner tube and all kinds of how-to options pop up. Of course, you have to have either a new inner tube or a patch kit on your bike to get the job done along with a way to pump up that tube, whether it's a CO2 cartridge or your bike pump. Now on to tubeless tires. Several of my bikes are now set up tubeless and I'm a big fan. Basically, a tubeless setup is similar to how your car tires are set up. There's no inner tube inside the tire. Instead, you need tubeless ready or tubeless compatible wheels and tires. With these things combined, it's a setup where the tire creates an airtight seal around the rim. And during installation, a special sealant liquid is added to the tire. And I consider this stuff to be magical. Think of it kind of like Elmer's glue. It's a liquid sloshing around inside the tire, just waiting until a puncture happens. Then when that puncture does happen, the liquid seeps into the hole. And as it dries, it seals up the hole. Most of the time it happens quickly and you won't even lose air. You don't even have to stop pedaling. Now, if it's a bigger puncture that can't self seal, you can put a plug in the hole and still avoid having to take the tire off the frame. And that tire plug is pretty much the same as when you get a nail in your car tire. It's a sticky strip of gooey rubber that gets jammed into the hole and along with that liquid goo inside, the hole seals up and away you go. You don't have to take it off the rim. And many times you don't even have to put more air in it. Both tubeless and tires with tubes have pros and cons. And even when I ride the bikes that have tubeless tires, I still carry an extra tube as a just in case. But for the most part, 
With tubeless tires, you'll experience less flats simply because they self-repair. You might even actually see a bit of that fluid on your tire after running over some road debris, but most of the time your tires stay inflated, and when you see that fluid, that's when you know your bike is fixing itself and saving you the headache of changing or patching the inner tube. All right, next up, Candace emailed me to ask, you seem to do a lot of group riding and I would like to know how to get started. I am intimidated. Okay, Candace, I was once you and I, I believe group riding is definitely a learned skill and if you plan to register for any sort of big event, especially like RAGBRAI, it's probably time to get past any fears. So my tips, first and foremost, is to find some friends with similar bike skills and find a trail or low traffic road. Ride close to each other, but with enough space between each bike so you feel comfortable. And then as you ride further, keep closing that gap as you build confidence. In my opinion, the key is to take full responsibility for what's in front of you and also to trust those who are directly behind you. Here's what I mean by this. You and you alone must maintain control of your bikes at all times and be able to quickly maneuver your bike to handle whatever is in front of you. That could be road debris, it could be street traffic, it could be a dog, or it could mean another cyclist. If the cyclist in front of you has to apply the brakes or swerve unpredictably, it's your responsibility to control your own bike. If this means you need to keep more distance between you and the bike ahead of you, then do it. Crashing into the back of another bike means you are not in control of your bike, period. If you need more space to be able to react, then give yourself more space. And if the cyclist in front of you is consistently pedaling in an erratic matter for whatever reason, you probably should pick a different cyclist to ride behind or give yourself more space or maybe even find a new group to ride with. It's just too stressful. And from my experience, the longer you ride with the same group of cyclists, you'll learn who to ride with and how to react to their bike skills, which in turn helps you decide how much space you need to stay in control of your own bike. And before you know it, group riding becomes predictable and, in my opinion, pretty darn fun. Now, on the other side of this is to trust that the cyclist behind you will be controlling their bike in the same way that you are. You should not have to look back to see what they are doing. Like, let me repeat that. Do not look back to see what the person behind you is doing. Either you trust their riding in a safe manner, or once again, pick different people to ride with. One last note about group riding is how important communication is. Whoever's in the front needs to call out any changes during the ride. So if they are slowing, stopping, turning, if there's a pothole, pretty much anything that would cause a change in the group dynamic they need to call it out. There's definitely a lot more to think about when you're group riding. You have to focus on the bike in front of you, but also you have to be aware of your surroundings. Like if I'm the you know third or fourth cyclist in a group, I may not be able to see if there's a stop sign coming up or if there's a pothole in the road ahead. So it's vital that whoever is up front lets the entire group know what's ahead. And if you have a big enough group, 
If you hear somebody yell in front of you, then you need to in turn yell that same thing so people behind you can hear what's coming ahead. I'm a big fan of leading group rides for multiple reasons, but I definitely think different when it comes to communication of any movements. I envision myself as the front of a train moving along the trail and In the front, I may be able to see an obstacle in front of me or I know when it's time to turn or to slow or to speed up or whatever, but the back of my train cannot, and they cannot always react as quickly as I can in the front. So the quicker I call out something, the better chance the back of the train can react. I don't know. It might not make as much sense to say that out loud, but when I'm actually leading a group... I always know that reaction time is not as quick in the back of the group as it is for me in the front. So I always know that I need to give more time than I would normally if I was biking by myself. I will say there's a lot to learn when group riding, but but hopefully these few tips help you get started. Okay, next question. Have you been on any bike rides in Minnesota? And this came in from Bryn. Well, thank you, Bryn, for emailing. And yes, I absolutely love biking in Minnesota. I'm sure most of you know I live in Iowa, so it's not a very far drive to get to a whole new biking environment. You can hear all about my bike tour way up north Minnesota on the Paul Bunyan Trail. It's episode 81 I will say the Paul Bunyan Trail, it's over 100 miles, I think like 115 miles, and it's all a paved trail. It stretches from Crow Wing State Park all the way to Bemidji, and it is Minnesota's longest trail. Also, I would highly recommend the Root River Trail if you're looking for scenic, paved, and not extremely long. It's a great out and back kind of trail where you could kind of set up camp or Airbnb or hotel or whatever in one place and then go different directions each day to see new sites. Plenty of small towns. I think the Root River State Trail and the Harmony Preston Valley Trail, I think that's the name of the other trail that intersect. So like I said, you can kind of choose your own adventure and go in any direction, east, west, north, or south. Altogether, it's about 60 miles of paved trails. I will say it's not a flat trail, and it's not a straight trail, so be prepared to do a bit of climbing, but man, the the views are well worth it. One of my favorite towns is Lanesboro. Super, super cute. Plenty of shopping, good places to eat, and be sure to check out this really cool waterfall just outside of town. And you can go to rootrivertrail.org for more info. A quick interruption to tell you this week's podcast is sponsored by Lizard Lips Lip Balm. These great lip balms contain natural ingredients, come in a variety of flavors, and you can choose certified organic or balms with sun protection. Check it out at lizardlips.net. Now back to the show. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks, everyone, for contacting me with your questions and comments. It's always fun to read and answer questions, and even more fun when I answer them uh, live on a podcast. So keep them coming. And if you happen to be listening to this episode the end of December, happy holidays.
Well, that's it for this week. A few great deals to send your way. Use code MURFOLOGY at hammerhead.io to get a free heart rate monitor with your crew, too. And a shout out to Lily Trotter's Compression Socks. Use code MURFOLOGY to get 20% off your purchase of the best compression socks. Also use code PRIMALMURF for 20% off your Primal Wear cycling gear at primalwear.com. Of course, email me at morphologypodcast at gmail.com if you have a topic or the name of a cyclist you find interesting. Support my podcast at patreon.com slash morphology and visit my Facebook, Instagram, and website for daily entertainment. I have more great episodes in the pipeline, so I hope you continue to be a morphology podcast listener. Mm-hmm.